This afternoon, we'd like to pay attention to a few words from Matthew 11, verse 29, about our Lord Jesus, who refers to himself as gentle and lowly in heart. In connection therewith, we'd like to read from a few portions of God's Word, Isaiah 42, 53, and Matthew 11. And then, because today is also Palm Sunday, and I realized that i referring to the event of Palm Sunday in the sermon, I thought we could read a few verses from Matthew 21. Uh, hopefully that's not a problem, even though it's not in the bulletin and not pre-announced. Isaiah 42 is first. These are the famous, some of the suffering servant of the Lord passages. Isaiah 42, 1 to 3, first of all. Hear the word of God. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench. He will, not bring, he will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fall or fail nor be discouraged. Then we turn to Isaiah 53. where Jesus is depicted as the man of sorrows. Isaiah 53, verse 1, the word of the Lord, Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should despise him, he is des- that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Then we turn again to the gospel according to Matthew, this time from chapter 11. Matthew 11, verse 20, and we'll read to verse 21 of chapter 12. 11, verse 20, the Word of God. Then he began, our Lord Jesus began, to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. 
But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? And he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. And the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. This is Isaiah 42 again. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory. And in his name, Gentiles will trust. Then we turn yet to a few words from Matthew 21, verse 1. 
reading to verse 11. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. He brought, they brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on him, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. This afternoon we pay attention especially to the words of verse 29. The words of the Lord in verse 29, For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, among all the words that our Lord Jesus has passed on to the church by way of the Gospels, and there are many of those words, we ought to have an eye for the special nature, the unique place of the eight words before us this afternoon. In his recent and popular book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland passes on what Charles Spurgeon already said, that in all the 89 chapters of the four Gospels, there's only one chapter where Jesus tells us about his own heart. Of course, there are many places, especially in John's Gospel, where Jesus uses the word I, I am the light of the world, I am the good shepherd. I am the door, and so forth. But in all of those, the impact has more to do with his mission than his person. He tells us more there about why he's come and who he represents than he does about who he is. But here he is so personal for I. Today we would say here he's so vulnerable Without any pretense, and in a precious moment, he bears his soul, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. It says, Ortland, in the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down into the core of who he is, we are not told that he is austere and demanding in heart. We are not told that he is exalted and dignified in heart. We are not even told that he is joyful and generous in heart, 
Letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. But what we like to see this afternoon in the time we have is the great significance of these words. In this passage, Matthew 11, in Matthew's gospel, and in the New Testament, and hence in your and my life, It's a wonderful thing to behold the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But words like this have further impact because again and again, we are urged in Scripture to become like Him. And essentially, really, if we are in Christ, then we are like Him. But our mission is it not to be Christ-like, The adopted sons and daughters of the Father by the Spirit are to resemble the eldest and the best son of the family. So God's Word comes to you this afternoon under this theme, as is the head, so should be the body. First of all, gentle, and secondly, lowly in heart. Brothers and sisters, the first word gentle that Jesus uses here is a word that is used in ancient literature for things, a gentle wind, gentle words. It's also used for animals that are tamed, but it was often used even for people. In the literature of the time, it was used to describe a man who is noble, a sage who remains meek in the face of insults, a judge who is lenient in judgment and a king who is kind in his rule. It's a word that presumes that in such a person there is no cruelty and little or no anger. It's often found in the Psalms where it references the lowly and the humble, those characterized by a gentle spirit. And so when our Lord Jesus uses it of himself, he's speaking, I believe, both of his character and his actions. He's the one who speaks the kind and humble words of the Sermon on the Mount. How could he say, blessed are the meek, if he was not meek himself and all the other Beatitudes? You and I and the Pharisees can say something and and there can so easily be those who would accuse us of hypocrisy because our actions are not always consistent with our words. But who would accuse the Savior of the same. Would you? He is the fulfillment of the servant song of Isaiah, the meek Savior of Isaiah 42 and 53. Or read his his wonderful discourse, for example, in, in John 14 to 16. Only a gentle man could speak so lovingly to his disciples on the very night of his own death. Read the passage. How much does it say about his own death? He is the one who comes to heal the people, the nation, where there's pain in Israel. He can be found, often bringing about healing and resolution. He is the one who wondrously images very God himself, who in Exodus describes himself as the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. In the face of the Son, 
We behold the family resemblance of the Father, and we learn what's expected of us if we would consider ourselves members of this family. How often did Jesus see, not say, if you know me, you know the Father. If you have seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. It's actually very surprising that it's Matthew who gives us these words about the character of our Lord. Because think about it. Matthew is the gospel about Jesus the King. And if, ever, everywhere, if anywhere we want somebody to be, to be strong, it's when you talk about a king. But that's not where the emphasis is. At the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, there's all this emphasis on him, Jesus, as the son of David. Why? Because there's a need for someone to repair the great damage to the throne of David, which is in ruins. The number 14, the number of David, is at the forefront of that genealogy in Matthew 1. Joseph is needed in the whole narrative, the whole birth narrative, because Joseph is the son of David. And if Jesus would be the, 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 the son of David, and, and Joseph is the crown prince. If Israel was in its own domain and in control, Joseph would be King Joseph. And Jesus is going to be King Joseph precisely because Joseph is involved by the Holy Spirit. At the end of the gospel, we see our, our king, the Lord Jesus, proclaiming from the mountaintop like a ruler, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And in between, what is its theme but Jesus as king? The Sermon on the Mount is the sermon delivered by a king. All Israel at the end of chapter 4 is gathered together, and then the king pronounces these wonderful words. The parables are about his kingship, so what kind of king will he be? In our day, we, we, we are all too familiar with kings and too many of them who are cruel tyrants and evil dictators. Will that be his nature? He's a representative of the holy God. Will that be his nature? Here's your answer. Very strikingly, the same word, gentle, is also used to describe Jesus as king in Matthew 21, the passage which we read on this Palm Sunday. Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on what? One would expect a horse because that was the appropriate mount for the mighty kings come riding tall and, and proud to victory on a horse. But he comes on a donkey. It's a fulfillment of Zechariah 9. The point of Zechariah and Matthew is to contrast the warlike and the peaceful. Those bent on war and determined to leave in victory, come on a horse. But those who come on a mission of peace ride on a humble donkey. In Matthew 21, he instructs two disciples to bring him very specifically a donkey. And on that he rides into the royal city as the introduction of the king. And if there's any doubt about the symbolism there, it's clarified by Matthew, who quotes from Zechariah 9 and uses strikingly the very same word as is used in Matthew 11, verse 29. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, 
the foal of a donkey. Surely they would wonder in the face of all their expectations, what kind of king is this? The rule of this king will clearly be characterized not by force or by war. He will bring about salvation in Israel in a gentle and peaceful manner. Actually, there's also another contrast implied in these words, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Because notice the first word of those eight words is the word for. He's stating a reason. He's telling us the reason why we should come to him and find rest in him, as well as the reason why we should be able to take his yoke upon ourselves and and learn from him. The yoke he's talking about is the yoke of his instruction. We know that because he clarifies what he means by a yoke when he says in the next phrase, and learn from me. Take my yoke and learn from me. The yoke is the yoke of his teaching. It's another theme in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is presented as the, as the rabbi who instructs his disciples, as the Jewish leader who teaches his Jewish students. But he is no harsh and exacting teacher like those Pharisees. He's gentle even in his teaching. He does not lay upon them the full weight of, of everything the Pharisees want to add to the laws of Moses. You can't read this without thinking of Jesus' comment in 23 verse 4 where Jesus says about the Pharisees, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders. If we need to learn anything from the Sermon on the Mount, we must learn that he has a completely different way of reading and understanding the law of Moses, different from the Pharisaic burdensome methods. He teaches them to really read Moses, to think about the depth of what Moses says. It's not just about the letter of the law of Moses, it's even about their intent. It's not just about committing adultery, it's about even looking lustfully. Even Matthew 12, the portion that we read, is an illustration of that. In Matthew 12, in Matthew 11, Jesus speaks about rest. I will give you rest. Well, chapter 12 is about what? It's about rest. Sabbath rest. There comes the Pharisees with their burdens. Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Do you want harsh teachers? There they are, the Pharisees. Your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And Jesus teaches them again how to read Moses, how to understand the law. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Even the subsequent passages about the law, the man with the withered hand, they say he cannot be healed on the Sabbath. But according to Jesus, he can. For the Sabbath was not designed to hinder the kind deeds of the people of God, but precisely to encourage those kind deeds. Notice what comes next in Matthew 12. Isaiah 42 is quoted because in all of this, Jesus is seen as the gentle, suffering servant of Isaiah. He is the one the prophets foretold. He is the one who is just what he said. Look at him precisely because he is gentle. A bruised reed, he will not break. Someone who is weak. He will not destroy. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Someone who is like a dying fire he will not seek to eliminate. 
All of this doesn't mean, by the way, that Jesus is some kind of pushover who never becomes angry or never expresses his disapproval. Didn't we read Matthew eleven twenty one, where Jesus pronounces his, his judgment on Chorazin and Bethsaida, Jewish towns that had witnesses so many, had witnessed so many of Jesus' miracles. And you can read more of this, again, in Matthew 23, where, where the gloves come off, as it were, in the debate between Jesus and the Pharisees. You hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, he says. And where at the end, Jesus is weeping over the future of Jerusalem. But there is no anger that goes more noticed than when a person who's usually mild and gentle, becomes angry. The anger of an enemy is one thing, but the, one, the anger of one who really loves you bites deep and stops us in our tracks. But the point is, if ever there was a message about the grace of God and the Gospels, here it is. In the face of cruel tyrants and onerous teachers, the Lord Jesus stands out, all the weak and weary and burdened need to do is come and learn from him. It's all we need to do. The rest will then be ours. Our hearts are restless, O oh God, Augustine said, until they find their rest in you. And we can do that not because, not only because his yoke is easy, his understanding of the law and the expectations of God are so much better, so much more gracious, but we can do that because he is gentle and lowly in heart. As Ortland puts it, his yoke is kind, his burden is light. That is, his yoke is a non-yoke, his burden is a non-burden. What helium does to a balloon, Jesus' yoke does to his followers. We are buoyed along in life by his endless gentleness and supremely accessible lowliness. He doesn't simply meet us at our place of need. He lives in our place of need. He never tires of sweeping us into his tender embrace. It is his very heart. But the major point to realize, brothers and sisters, is not only is he like this, his mission is precisely to make us like this as well. This is not just a character trait in him that we are told to behold and admire and say, oh, I wish I was like that. This is a character trait that every one of the children of God receive in Christ and are to cultivate and develop. The fact is, in our fallen state, we all have a nice side and an ugly side. And we are, as they sometimes say, whatever side you feed. But if we are in Christ, we cannot be content to argue, well, that's just the way I am. Got to accept me. That's me. In Christ, by his Spirit, a new me has come into being. Time and again in the scriptures, we too are urged to be like this. 
Very strikingly, Paul in 2 Corinthians 10 entreats the Corinthians with these words. I, Paul, appeal to you with the gentleness and kindness of Jesus Christ. Notice Paul doesn't base anything on his, on his own kindness, nor is it a gentleness and kindness that comes from Christ. No, it is the very gentleness and the very kindness of Jesus Christ on which he bases his argument and appeal. I, Paul, appeal to you with the gentleness and kindness of Christ. Maybe he means to say, even with the gentleness and kindness I've learned from Christ, maybe he means to say, with the gentleness and kindness I have in Christ. It's because Christ is living in Paul, shaping him, forming him, as he does with all his people. It's no longer I who live, says Paul to the Galatians, but Christ who lives in me. A similar note is sounded in Philippians 1 verse 8 where Paul says he longs for the Philippians not just with his own affection, but with the affection, the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. And that notion that that which characterizes Christ should characterize the Christians is all over the place in the New Testament. Who is the Holy Spirit? He is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So this is Jesus' work. This is the Spirit's work. To make us more like Christ. Therefore, the fruit of the Spirit, says Paul to the Galatians, is gentleness. The fruits of the Spirit are not something that you, you produce through your own self-will power and efforts. Look at the list. The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience. We learn something new. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We receive them all in Christ, says Paul. They are not fruits of your new resolve. They are fruits of the Spirit of Christ in you. So now Paul says, be like that. Become what you are. Work it out. Work out your own salvation means work out the consequences of who you are and who you have become in Christ. He says to the Thessalonians, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. In 1 Timothy 3, are you thinking about office bearers? Paul says that every office bearer ought to be not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. To Titus, Paul says that all believers need to be told to avoid quarreling, to be gentle. And to show perfect courtesy towards all people. James writes about the meekness of wisdom and says that wisdom that comes from above is pure, peace-loving, gentle, open to reason. And then there are pictures in the New Testament of what it means to be gentle. Think of Paul's picture of husbands in Ephesians 5. Ever wonder why men are referred to as gentlemen? Maybe that's because that's exactly what we are to be, gentle men. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. Is that not a picture of Jesus as the gentle one who comes to do what it takes? In marriage, in the family, the value of love and gentleness is is simply inestimable. We've often been told that there are not many old men who, as they look back on their lives, say to people around them, you know, I, I really wish I spent more time in the office. They have other thoughts. But similarly, I don't believe there are many old men who look back on their lives and their relationships and and wish that there were times when they were more outspoken and, and, and more angry. But I'm sure that almost everyone can call to mind events, encounters, relationships, and times when they wish they had been more gentle. The truth is, in the brokenness of our world, there is, no more, there, is, there is more to be gained by cultivating the gentle side of a person's character than any other side. It doesn't deny the need for, 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 for the men to be leaders and leaders with a purpose, with a vision. It doesn't deny the need for them to be insistent at times. But it's not a dictatorial leadership by the decrees of the powerful. It's the loving leadership of a person who has learned spades about compassion and gentleness. If the world is not to be run by bossy dictators, but by loving servants, if the church is to be one run that way, and it is... So it must be in the family, first of all. Unless we think this only applies to the men, think of what Peter says to the wives of Asia Minor. Don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. Her best jewelry is the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Jewelry you cannot see, but you will see. You could say it all flows out of those first Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Already at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus makes it clear, these will be the characteristics of those who will be bought with my blood and filled with my spirit. Ultimately, of course, we don't become like this just by observing his example. I would be without hope with respect to salvation if it had to depend on me just observing his example. So I would be without hope to show myself as a new being if it depended only on me and following his examples. These characteristics we receive in Christ and when we then live in the awareness that it's the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ who lives in us, we will become more and more like this. 
It's not automatic. It takes effort. Work it out. Draw the consequences. The more we commune with him intentionally, the more we become like him. And our lives, our families, our communities will be the better for it. Ortland suggests in his book the fact that Jesus is gentle means he's accessible. I don't think that's what the word gentle means, but I do believe that's the result of gentleness. Somebody is more approachable when they're known to be gentle. My grandchildren will approach to me if they know I to be it, me to be a gentle grandfather. It applies everywhere in the human relationships. Come to me, he says, because I am gentle and lowly in heart. Someone who is gentle in this sense is certainly approachable and accessible. We need not fear approaching him. What a comfort this is. Because think of it, this Jesus so described, this Jesus who so revealed himself when he walked on the face of the earth is the very same Jesus who sits in the heavens above. The very same person who gave himself on the tree of the cross is the one who rules today and the one who comes again and the one who will judge us. He's the one to whom we pray today. We can know with all our burdens, with all our pains, even when we so fail him, even when we so sin and make a mess of things, we can go to him because he's gentle and lowly in heart. The very same person. So pour out your heart before him. Commune with him. Be right with him. And become like him in all things. But the Lord Jesus refers to himself not only as gentle, but also as lowly in heart. What exactly does that mean, lowly in heart? Well, the word lowly suggests someone or something or someone who is not proud. Not up in a higher class, but it also has the connotation of being willing to be humbled even more. The verb form of the word is used, for example, of the Nile River, which, which falls gradually. Jews of a people who are content to humble themselves before others. To be lowly in heart references someone who is not proud, not stubborn, and not insistent on maintaining the position that one has or that one thinks one deserves. And so it's a wonderful description of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of it. He's the Son of God. He's God. And he comes into this world and finds a place not among the high and the mighty, but among those who are of no account, those who are hurting and those who are rejected. Read the Gospels. The Pharisees are so often annoyed because he does not spend much time with them, but is always found among those who are despised and despicable in their society. It's so very, very wonderful that this is our Lord Jesus, not proud, not stubborn, not insistent on, coming what's, on getting what's coming to him as we often are, 
It's wonderful that this is our Lord, lowly in heart. Because think of it. What would come of the gospel story? What would have come of your salvation and my salvation if he was otherwise? What would come of the, we- of the events we celebrate in this week as he goes to the tree of the cross if he was anything other than lowly in heart? For just like the Nile falling gradually, this is what's needed of our Savior to humble himself even more and more and more, to suffer and suffer even unto death, even the death of a common criminal despicable on the tree of a cross. This self-description of our Lord Jesus suggests his submissiveness before the Father, his humility before even other human beings who are much lower than himself, and even his willingness to be humbled more and more. He has come not to be served, but to serve. And notice this lowliness is not just a quality as for a while. This is who he is, lowly in heart. It means this is his nature. That's what he's all about. The Apostle Paul speaks wonderfully about it in Philippians 2. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to hold on to at all costs, never to let go. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant, of a slave humbled himself by becoming, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And is it not true then, even as we are to mirror the gentleness of our Lord Jesus Christ, so we are to mirror his lowly nature? There can be no such thing as a proud Christian. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And he means the Lord Jesus, Paul. Again and again he says says that. In other words, what else in this life is there to boast about than Jesus Christ and that you may belong to him? Isn't this what our Lord Jesus teaches us? Blessed are the meek. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. With those words, Jesus urges us to acknowledge our our lowly position and to act accordingly. We need to be deeply convinced of how lowly we truly are before God in the face of our Lord Jesus. And there's the very real possibility, is there not, that we will need to go lower yet. Take my Take up your cross and follow me, he said. With those words, he wasn't just inviting us to go with him for a walk in the park. He wasn't asking us to join him on a journey or a cruise. He was bidding us to die with him and like him. A cross was a symbol of a certain death. A man carrying a cross spoke volumes of what was about to happen to him. Every Jewish person would understand he was going to his place of death. Are we prepared for that? If you have any clue as to what's happening in our nation, in our culture, in our world, you will know more difficult times are coming for the people of God 
even in countries that claim to be free. We shouldn't be surprised. Paul once said to Timothy, all who lead a godly life will be persecuted. All who lead a godly life will be persecuted. So I've got to be asking myself, if I'm not being persecuted, am I still living, leading a godly life? It's a good question to be asking. It's coming, folks. Understand the times and be prepared by the Spirit of God. Whether we sit in the pew or climb the pulpit, regardless of education, regardless of wealth, regardless of status, this is the nature of the people of God individually and collectively. The Apostle Paul understood his own apostolic ministry to be one of just following the Lord in humble service. If anybody would enter into office today in the church of God, don't fool yourself. This is not to be served, but this is to serve even as Jesus Christ served. In the book of Acts, Paul summarizes his own ministry when he says, I serve the Lord with great humility, literally with all lowliness of mind and with tears. Content to be a tent maker. Not that he couldn't insist on his rights, but a tent maker. He lowered himself so that the church might be elevated. He recognized God's role in humbling him, even if it was through strife or abuse, sin of others, even if they put him into prison. Precisely because God so shaped him, he could exhort all God's people to humility as well. This basic attitude informs all Paul's exhortations to humility, and there are many of them. To the Romans, he says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. He urges the Ephesians, be completely Humble and gentle. There you have it again. Completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You don't do that when you insist. You are the one who took the right position. You do that when you say, it doesn't matter. We find the same notes in James. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower. And Peter, here's a contrast. What is this with the power of the gospel and the Spirit of God, this man is so carnal. So as he is in the Gospels, look at him, proud and ready to be the boldest and to say, I'll do this, Lord, I'll do this. And then he, then he falls. There's a man who wrote a, a book who is a Roman Catholic uh, priest, and he wrote a book about Peter, and he showed that every time Peter boasts something, he falls on the next page. And as he then proceeded to talk about papal infallibility, and you know what the Pope did to him. But... This is Peter. The, God, the power of the gospel and the power of the Spirit of God. 
This man is so, as he is in the Gospels, so often saying the wrong thing, so proud until he falls and Jesus, precisely because he has fallen and been humbled, Jesus can restore him. Simon, do you love me? But listen, listen to Peter in his epistles. He has learned about how to be an office bearer. All of you, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, he says, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Peter's speaking from his own experience. Peter's speaking about what happened to him by the power of the Spirit of God. To the whole congregation, this Peter says, finally all of you should be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tender-hearted and keep a humble attitude. And here's James, the brother of our Lord Jesus. He speaks of God, giving his grace generously, and then says, as the Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you, says James. So much of this, brothers and sisters, is, is rests on the fact that if we are in Christ, Christ is in us, and we are in him. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. And then we're like him. We resemble him. A family resemblance develops. The brothers of our Lord and Savior become like our Lord himself by the Spirit of God, lowly, humble in heart. It characterizes him By the grace and the Spirit of God, it should also characterize you and me. Amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you and we thank you. We love you and we pray that you would help us to love you all the more. Help us to do that and to show that even by cultivating that which is so much of that which is good in us by way of you, by way of your spirit, by way of the fact that we are one with you. We pray that you would bless us so that we might be as you are, wherever we are, whatever the challenge, whatever the obstacles, whatever the concerns, whatever the troubles, most gracious God, cause us to be by your Holy Spirit, what we would never be of ourselves, gentle and lowly in heart, by way of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and the power of your most wonderful Spirit. Hear us in Jesus' name alone.